0: On this week's Wealth Track podcast, financial thought leader Paul McCulley on why helicopter money's time has come.
1: We're moving from a world of monetary policy dominance, where the Fed would be called the only game in town, to a world of fiscal policy dominance, where you genuinely have a mix of fiscal and monetary policy, but fiscal policy takes the lead. And monetary policy takes the subordinate role.
0: Financial thought leader Paul McCulley this week on WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this WealthTrack podcast. I'm Consuela Mack. Our topic today is helicopter money. A concept coined by Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman. Basically, Friedman theorized that as a last resort in a deflationary depression, that the government could drop dollar bills from a helicopter for people to pick up and spend to, quote, shock it out of a deep slump, and also aim at boosting demand and inflation. Now, that theory has now become reality. The Fed is printing money in the trillions, and the government is distributing money to the population in the trillions with more to come. Enter today's guest, Paul McCulley, who wrote an academic paper back in 2013 titled Helicopter Money, or How I Stopped Worrying About and Love Fiscal and Monetary Cooperation. McCulley is currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown Business School, where he teaches a multidisciplinary course combining economics, monetary policy, global finance, and behavioral finance. But he made his reputation as a great investor and financial thought leader at PIMCO, where until 2010, he was senior partner, founding member of its investment policy committee, author of the influential monthly global central bank Focus, and manager of its huge short-term trading desk, overseeing an estimated $400 billion in assets. Paul, welcome. It's great to have you back on WealthTrack.
1: My pleasure.
0: Paul, your policy time has come. (laughs) We are seeing the equivalent of helicopter money and fiscal and monetary cooperation. Why do you love it?
1: Well, love it may be too strong a word from the standpoint of the factors that drove it, but as a wonk, I love it because I've been researching and studying in this for a long period of time, notably the monetary fiscal policy mix. And when you're at an extreme moment where deflation risk and depression is staring you in the face, uh, then you have to have a merger of monetary and fiscal policy and move to a world of fiscal dominance. And that's really the key phrase that I've been using recently is we're moving from a world of monetary policy dominance, where the Fed would be called the only game in town, to a world of fiscal policy dominance, where you genuinely have a mix of fiscal and monetary policy. But fiscal policy takes the lead and monetary policy takes the subordinate role. And it makes total sense because strict table pounding independence for the central bank is to prevent a inflationary problem. And when you have the exact opposite, a deflationary problem, then the case for strict central bank independence goes out the window. And fortunately, our leadership in Washington at the Fed very much understands that. And I give a huge, huge applause for uh, Chair Powell's leadership.
0: You liken our situation to being at war. So explain why we are at war.
1: I use war as an analogy because when we are at war as a country, then we have a collective action problem as a country uh, and we have to react as a country. So therefore the divisions that we have between our institutions become collapsed. And we saw that in World War II for many, many years and for years thereafter, when essentially we had to mobilize our country, redirect our resources, not by the market, but by the government directive. Uh, And during that period of time, we needed to have essentially, the government be the spender and the money printer because capitalism was in limbo until we won the war. The war obviously wasn't a foreign enemy, but a act of God. And we had to respond collectively in a fashion that put capitalism in suspended animation.
0: So, Paul, we're in a situation, number one, the pandemic, we haven't had one in our lifetime, and certainly the massive policy response to it. So, you've talked about it being a paradigm shift. And, you know, if you define a paradigm shift, it means a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. So, how much has the approach changed since the global financial crisis?
1: Essentially, after the financial crisis, we tried to renormalize back to the monetary policy-dominant world that had prevailed for the preceding 30 years. And I think that's a key issue that will be different coming out of this one, in that central bank independence is all about cutting off the fat-tail risk of inflation, uh, and that will be an enduring reality, I think, for us in the years ahead. So I don't think we'll have a quick return to, quote-unquote, normalization with respect to monetary policy, that we will have an enduring period of very friendly Fed policy, subordinate to the fiscal authority, uh, and actually they really do want inflation to go up. And I think coming out of this episode, and we will come out of it, then I think they will work double time to getting inflation up, which actually means don't work at all on the tightening side of things. Let inflation go up and then maybe down the road respond to it if it goes up too much. There will not be any quick return to trying to uh, fine tune the economy. The Fed will be easy until both the economy and inflation recover.
0: A lot of the critics of the Fed said, you know, we never got back to normalization. It never happened. Is that a problem? Are we in a new normal where we can just assume that we're gonna be in a permanent easing, kind of as a a normal course of events?
1: I think for the last 10 years, we've been in a rolling new normal uh, that we keep redefining it as the Fed has tried prior to the pandemic to get back to where it was prior to the financial crisis. We had the period right after the financial crisis where they were at zero on interest rates and were still growing their balance sheet, and then they reduced growth in their balance sheet, and then ultimately they start reducing their balance sheet, and then they also lifted rates from zero to two and a half percent. So Uh, The normalization process was always trying to get back to the paradigm prior to the financial crisis, and it was a rolling normalization process. And it was, in the Fed's view, more or less complete in 2019. In fact, they had overshot uh, when they got to 2.5%, and then we had the three eases back south of, uh, of 2% uh, in 2019, and Chair Powell described it as a good place very early this year. So ironically enough, they were normalizing the entire decade after the uh, uh, financial crisis, and they'd almost got there very different sort of levels when you think in terms of normal being a 2% short-term interest rate. But the thing that they never achieved during that normalization process or rolling normalization is their inflation target. And that was because we had a fundamental paradigm shift in the economy itself, not policy per se, but the economy uh, and it's called the flattening of the Phillips curve, where the trade off between falling unemployment and rising inflation went flat. And we went all the way down to 3.5% on the unemployment rate without an echo on the inflation side. And in fact, the Fed was in the middle of a huge strategic review of what is known as its reaction function last year, trying to figure out how to calibrate policy in a world where regardless of how tight the labor market was getting, uh, we weren't getting much of an inflation echo and they couldn't get up to their 2%. So I think the Fed was in a decade-long normalization process, did a fantastic job, but the economy itself changed and then everything changed and there was only one thing for them to do, which was to react boldly and quickly uh, which they did, and, and also to be very open publicly about uh, the notion that we needed to have fiscal expansion, and basically say, you know, as Chair Powell said many times in recent weeks, that the feds in the lending business, not the spending business, and we need to have the fiscal authority engage in spending, which becomes income replacement for the private sector during this period of, of uh, diminished economic activity. So I think that the normalization process after this pandemic will be a whole lot more cautious than the one after the financial crisis. And not that that one was reckless at all, but it still had an element of being preemptive of inflation that we need to reduce our balance sheet separate ourselves from the fiscal Authority, increase interest rates, get back to a new normal or a new neutral for interest rates. Whereas I think coming out of this pandemic depression, effectively, they will not try to be in a fine tuning mode whatsoever. They're going to stay here near zero until it is unambiguously clear that the economy is on sound footing and And this is a really big and and that inflation is going up and is achieving a sustainable position north of 2%. And that's why I really stress it's a paradigm shift and the, the Fed will be reactive to higher inflation and will be welcoming of economic growth. So we'll be in a world where growth is good, not growth is a reason to batten down the hatches for Fed tightening, which has been basically the motto for a good chunk of my life, it seems.
0: So, Paul, th- there's another huge difference between this crisis and, and other crises, that, financial crises that we've had. This one is a public health crisis, obviously, but this one has an end date. So once we get a vaccine and or an effective therapeutic treatment, This health crisis will be over and people can go back to life as usual. Does that mean that policies can return? You're saying that policies will not return to pre-pandemic responses, right? Why not? I mean, Milton Friedman, for instance, theorized that the helicopter approach was a last resort, a one-time only policy. Why can't we get back to normal once this health crisis is over? From a policy point of view.
1: I think you make a really good point that because this was truly an act of God, once we have a therapeutic and a vaccine, then theoretically we can get back to normal on the economy pretty quickly. And I think that's the basis of a lot of people talking about V's and so forth. And I buy that, that this economy has been like a ball pushed underneath the water uh, in a pool. And then if you take your hand off the ball, it will pop right back up, essentially growth by addition through the elimination of subtraction. Uh, So I think that we can have a pretty quick return. But I think this pandemic has really exposed the dark underbelly of unfettered capitalism and that the pandemic has really exposed the gross income and wealth inequality in our country. And I think there will be a fiscal policy response on that. And I think that will continue even once we get a vaccine that we're going to move towards a world where fiscal policy is going to address the income and wealth inequality, which means uh, a bigger government. And I think the Fed will have to, and should, and will adapt to that.
0: I've got to challenge you on this unfettered capitalism notion. I mean, we haven't had unfettered capitalism. We've had crony capitalism, and we're a highly regulated economy. One of your criticisms of of the bailout for the the global financial crisis was that it was a, a bailout for banks, essentially. And you've said that, that it did not help Main Street. It didn't help businesses. There are a lot of rules, regulations and everything else that are very restrictive, especially for small businesses. And I don't know whether that's going to change or not. But the fact is that capitalism is having an emergency is one of your you know quotes that you've said recently and the emergency really was caused by the government's response to a a public health crisis. The jury's out whether or not it was the appropriate response. I'm sure that people are going to be looking at that because there are other countries, Japan, for instance, had a very different response. Sweden does as well. But in the meantime, uh, you're saying that the, the, the damage has been done. And so your prognosis coming out of this is could be v-shaped or you know some people are calling it nike swish where do you think we are
1: i think recovery will start in the second half of the year and actually you raise a point that i'd like to speak to because we keep hearing all these discussions about the various letters and so forth and here i think it's important to distinguish between the level of economic activity and the growth rate in that recovery is coming off the bottom. And the growth rate will be enormous, I think, in the second half of this year. So if you look at it from the standpoint of first differences are you know, rate of change, the second quarter is going to be a gargantuan hole, and then the 3rd and 4th quarter will be very large numbers as effectively we come out of that hole which is really not an economic dynamic so so much is the addition by the elimination of subtraction because we reopen the economy so i think we'll have a v-shaped recovery from the standpoint of rate of change but we will have a very different type of recovery from actually reachieving the level that we were prior to the pandemic. Now, I'll give you a very simple example. Suppose that you were making a hundred dollars a week and you got your pay cut to $50 a week. You've had a 50% pay cut. You're in a depression. Now, let's suppose off of that 50, we give you a 50% pay increase. We're in recovery. We want to give you a 50% pay increase. So you're going to go from 50 to 75. This is a very large number. We can call this a V. However, you're going to be sitting here making 75 when just a few months ago you were making 100. Are you fully recovered? Absolutely not. You're at 75, not at 100, but you've had one hell of a recovery off of 50. But when are we going to get back to 100? And that's going to take a number of years, I think.
0: When I'm thinking of the damage that's been done to small business, I mean, 30 million small businesses with you know five or fewer employees and the damage done to not-for-profits, I'm on a couple of not-for-profit boards, and the damage done to every government you know entity that's aside from the feds the state and local yeah the recovery is going to look v-shaped but as you said you know compared to what it was it's going to take a long time to crawl back and in the process what kind of policies do we need
1: to help i think the big policy going forward is all federal fiscal policy i think the fed will be incredibly friendly and supportive of whatever Fiscal policy comes out, and the Fed would like to see uh, more munificent fiscal policy from the standpoint of filling the holes that you're talking about. Uh, and the big hole right now is that can be dealt with reasonably quickly, I think, is state and local governments. The Fed put together with the Treasury a lending facility so as that municipalities can borrow against future tax revenue but that doesn't cut it from the standpoint there has been a one-time loss of revenue that's dug a very large deep hole so I think the next big physical push will be for grants not loans but grants to state and locals and we didn't see that coming out of the financial crisis and for four years literally four years after the financial crisis state and local governments cut employment because they have to balance their budget because they don't have access to a printing press like Congress does. So what Congress has is the ability to effectively download money printing to state and locals, and I think it will do so. And that's the big political bait in Washington right now. So there's a lot of work to be done dealing with precisely the sectors you are mentioning, state and local, the nonprofit sector, which is very very large and does wonderful work right. between capitalism and 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 government, um, and on the small business side of things, the PPP program was incredibly good intentions behind it. The implementation was not the best, but that really is a area where I think we will see a lot of creative. Thought going on in Washington of how to keep um, the small business sector being at the forefront of job creation. Uh, So there's a huge amount of work to do. An additional overlay on the small business side of things that I think Washington will also be paying a lot of attention, at least I certainly hope so, is that during this pandemic, your big giants particularly your big tech giants, did fine and will be doing fine coming out of this. Uh, And so the concentration of economic power and wealth in the country is exacerbated by the pandemic. And I don't think the American people want to be citizens of the fang stocks. Uh, So I think that we will see fiscal policy efforts to try to support An environment where a small business person can actually make a living as opposed to have to throw in the towel and join forces with one of the giants. So all of the social justice work that was not done after the the financial crisis, I think, will come to the forefront. uh, And where the election comes out in November will obviously shape that in the years ahead. But I think the American people wants to uh, want to have a kinder, gentler type of economy. on on the other side of this.
0: Well, we'll see about that in November, Paul. If that's the case, but in the in in the meantime, fiscal conservatives are going nuts. Uh, they are essentially looking at uh, not only the Fed's balance sheet but also the government deficit and considering what you've just said as well, wondering what's the end game to all of this once we get through this, you know, how do you how do you wind this down? Or do you ever wind it down? Because as you know, once government programs start, it's very difficult to withdraw them and they become kind of part of the, the fabric of government. So you tell me how concerned are you about these ballooning deficits?
1: N- not at all. Just simply not concerned about the size of the deficit right now. Uh, It can't be too big right now Uh, from just the standpoint of getting cash into the aggregate demand stream of the economy. It doesn't mean that, you know, forever that we should have deficits of this size. Number one, because I think the economy is going to recover and there won't be a compelling need for deficits of this size. But I think what we will have are much larger deficits than the conservative wing would ever bless. Uh, And I think that's fine. I think we will have to right-size some of the programs that are being put in place right now. But some of the programs being put in place now have shown the american people that our government has the power to do things directed towards social justice meanwhile the american people would like to have their government be more supportive going forward and actually you think in terms of you know back to the 1930s put in social security or put differently fdr put in social security and the conservatives of that time, thought that was an abomination against decency in mankind, uh, and it's the most popular and most successful public policy to take care of our elderly. Uh, that uh, is not just our elderly, but it's it's an anchor of retirement planning for all households. So I think that new programs that are being introduced now will last for generations just like new programs uh, introduced in the 1930s.
0: In in the meantime the market's response has been very positive and you know here's the, the economy's basically been pushed off a cliff. How do you reconcile those two facts?
1: That's a pretty easy one to do in that once the pandemic hit and we had to literally shut down, or chose to shut down our economy, then essentially the economy wasn't a going concern financially. Because when you shut it down, you stopped revenue, but the entire financial structure of the economy is based upon contracts whether or not it's your mortgage or your employment contract those contracts assume that the economy is a going concern so you shut it off you not only shut off the revenue you call into question whether or not the economy is a going concern. But once you got the bold, powerful, double barrel of monetary and fiscal policy, then Wall Street could say, this is a going concern. We're not going to have a cascading of bankruptcies that takes us into a depression like we had in the 1930s. The balance sheet of We the People – and we're not on a gold standard so we can print money, the balance sheet of we the people is going to bridge us to the other side of this act of God. We'll have a different economy and so forth, but we will very much have a going concern. And once you got the uh, appropriate policy response, then Wall Street could start discounting a going concern economy as opposed to an economy going down the plug hole.
0: So it makes sense to you. (laughs) In other words, perfect sense.
1: (laughs) It makes sense. Now, it actually has a very interesting twist for the political side of things, and I haven't gotten my arms fully around how this is going to play out in the months ahead, and I think that the, the stock market doing what it's been doing in the last two months is perfectly rational. However... I have to explain it, and I think for the average person in America, it's, you know, what the hell's going on here? Wall Street's booming again. Wall Street's booming, and we got, you know, yet to see the 20% print on unemployment, which will be coming out very soon. Um, Mm -hmm. And on the political side of things, it implies to me that Wall Street should be careful about being too giddy, because if just as a hypothetical, suppose we were back at all-time highs for the stock market within the next three to six months. I don't think that the average American citizen is going to be warm and fuzzy about that in their voting process because the pandemic really has hurt the lower half of the income distribution disproportionately, and in fact, the bottom quarter in particular. So I think it's entirely rational as an economic matter for Wall Street to be doing what it's doing while the economy is in the hole because we've got the policy response that says that we will be a going concern when we come out of the hole. But politically, it's a much messier situation than rationality.
0: From your your investment hat point of view, uh, you know what's your recommendation to in investors stocks bonds cash alternatives gold
1: actually it's interesting you mentioned gold there and I don't tend to say warm and fuzzy things about gold very often, but actually I think gold's probably going to be in a multi-year bull market because I think the uh, United States is going to have a very easy monetary policy, which will force the rest of the world, uh, who'll be happy to join, in very easy monetary policy. So we'll devalue all currencies, not just the dollar, but we'll devalue all currencies against gold. Uh, with respect to you know your more you know conventional assets of stocks and bonds, clearly, we're, from my perspective, in the years ahead, it's going to be a equity world. We're, you know, we're going to be at zero for a long period of time on policy rates. And once the economy does show its ability to get back north of 2% on inflation, then uh, you're going to have a bear market in bonds. So for pure credit risk-free bonds, I don't see any intrinsic value going forward besides the fact that there are no risks. Uh, but from the standpoint of uh, so
0: these are treasuries you're talking about.
1: Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Right. So uh, essentially mm-hmm. everybody in fixed income land that is, you know, trying to make money for their clients have to be in equity light. So I think the, uh, the credit side of fixed income has some interesting opportunities going forward. The place to be is on credit as opposed to interest rate risk.
0: What do you mean by credit, Paul? Just put it in layman's terms.
1: Corporate bonds. But
0: as- investment grade or?
1: Oh, actually, I think it'll be across the entire spectrum. And we saw that coming out of the, the last recession as well. And so actually, it's the risk-laden portions of the fixed income market, which is corporates, uh, including junk bonds, also structured products where you're getting into the riskier slices and then the big area which can cross either fixed income or equity I think will be in the emerging markets where you have a lot of cheapness and for good reasons in a lot of places but you tend to make money when you buy things cheap
0: one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio we ask every guest on Wealth Track what would they have us own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio
1: emerging markets emerging markets i've said this before in conversations that we've had and i think know that they've gotten beaten around the head and shoulders really hard this year going forward they will be a land of opportunity and the fact that the fed has unambiguously declared victory on any war against inflation and is now fighting a war against deflation implies that over time we will have a weaker dollar. I hope it's difficult to get a weaker dollar, however, because everybody else wants to do the same thing that we're doing, which is why uh, it's probably positive for gold. But I think the emerging markets will have the flexibility to respond to their own holes to the point that given their current level of cheapness that I would recommend, not a lot, but an exposure to the emerging markets for long-term portfolios has nothing to do with the next three weeks.
0: Right, stocks, bonds, emerging markets, stocks or bonds, local currency. Yes, you actually in local currency.
1: Uh, effectively, it's. A, it, I think your long-term investors will be wearing a value hat. Uh, in the emerging markets. So when I think about it, both U.S. as well as the rest of the world, you want to be in global technology growth because they are running the new world, if you will. Everyone likes them. They're expensive, but they've got the right theme behind them. So you want to have the exposure to the global giants, And at the other end, you want to have exposure to, uh, uh, I think, the emerging markets and um, kind of a barbell portfolio between the biggest of the biggest and the uh, cheapest of of the small ones where you have a business model in countries where they have more flexibility because they don't have to worry about importing any Fed tightening risk uh, anytime soon.
0: Just explain the barbell approach.
1: The barbell approach is that one end you have your safest and the other end you have what is perceived as the riskiest. And your safest play, even though it is not cheap anymore, is in the global giants in technology we obviously have the big ones here in the united states with like the fangs fangs exactly and the fact that fang fang is rich does not mean that it has to go down so the big are going to get bigger particularly given the fact that life as we know it post the pandemic is going to be a whole lot more technology Intensive. The other end of the barbell is things that people say I would never ever go there. It's too risky. Um, And then you look at whether or not it's cheap, and it is cheap. And then you look at the macro environment. And the macro environment, I think, for emerging markets and the small and the cheap value area is going to improve because I think that. The United States is giving the emerging market world permission and latitude to be more aggressive in their own reflationary efforts.
0: Paul McCauley, always a treat to talk to you. You were a financial thought leader when you were active on Wall Street, and you continue to be as a professor. So thanks so much for joining us on WealthTrack.
1: Thank you, Consuelo.
0: Next week on our WealthTrack podcast, I'll be talking to financial historian Richard Silla, about the impact of past pandemics on the economy and markets and how they relate to this one. For previous interviews with Paul McCulley and other great investors and financial thought leaders, go to our website, WealthTrack.com. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.